Do you watch Friends? Do you watch How I Met Your Mother? Then you should should listen listen to How I Met Your Friends. Hi, I'm Kathleen. And I'm Julie. And we are the ladies behind How I Met Your Friends, the podcast that explores the similarities and theories of Friends and How I Met Your Mother. Every week, we watch an episode from each show and dive deep into the crossovers and catchphrases. So if you've ever noticed the similarities between these fantastic shows, come check out our podcast. You can reach us on social media at How I Met Your Friends Pod or email Pod at gmail.com. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. And now, on with the show. Hey everyone, welcome to... We're watching here! We're watching here! My, this is Opinionated Movie Talk with Chris and Perry. My name is Chris Williams. With me, as always, is the David Foster Wallace to my John Krakauer, Perry Cyber. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Perry? I'm great. How you doing, Chris? I'm good. Today, we're going to talk about uh, books, about film. And so instead of doing a uh, what are you watching, we're going to do a what are you reading, a little book book club. So, uh, Perry, what are you reading right now? Uh, I am currently not reading anything movie related. Okay. I have been going through steadily and surely... Uh, all of the Parker novels. Oh, okay. <laughs> by Richard Stark. Uh, uh, I had always meant to read them. I am a sucker for, I read a lot of, of crime and detective fiction. Sure. I like it. I, I'm just drawn to it for whatever reason. Uh, and I tend to, I tend to lock in and read all of a particular author. And okay. I've just done this at various times in my life. Uh, I can, I have, uh, and I, 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 I enjoy them tremendously. Okay. And so I'm in the middle of, there were two great epochs for Parker. Uh, Stark wrote, and Stark, of course, is a pseudonym for Donald Westlake. Uh, Stark wrote 16 Parker novels between, I think it's like 1961 and 1974. Wow. <laughs> and then didn't write another one for 13 years and then wrote eight more in the late wow. 90s and early 2000s. And I just started into the second epoch of Parker. He was the original legacy sequel. <laughs> yes. Uh, wasn't there a movie a few years ago with Jason Statham playing Parker? Yes, that was an adaptation of one of the Parker novels. Okay. The, the most famous, uh, point, uh, point Blank, mm-hmm. not Point Break, Point Blank is the most famous. And it's an adaptation of the very first Parker novel, The Hunter, which was, of course, remade as Payback by Mel yes. Gibson. Uh, that same story has been made a bunch of times. That, those two times. Uh, then see Point Blank, because it's will, even better. Yeah. I have seen Parker, and I was not a fan. Um, <laughs> which is odd, because I usually like Jason Statham quite Oh, well. I was fu- I was I was okay with it. I don't remember a thing about it, but I remember thinking, ah, that's, that's fine, I spent an hour and a half watching that. <laughs> uh, but what, you, what you're reading is actually movie-related, then. <laughs> In its own way, yeah. I suppose, yes. Mine is definitely movie-related. Um, so, as this airs, I am now 40, um, and one of the uh, commitments I made to myself for my 40th year is I'm going to read biographies. Um, I, I've always been interested. I, there's a, I always read biographies and I like them, but I kind of wanted to focus just on biographies for this year for some reason. Um, and so I am currently reading Brian J. Jones's uh, George Lucas, A Life. <laughs> uh, the, obviously the biography of um, Steven Spielberg. But... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it was I, and the reason I picked it out is not even because I'm super interested in George Lucas, um, but Brian J. Jones wrote a really great biography of Jim Henson a few years ago that I quite enjoyed. Uh, he has another one that came out this year on Dr. Seuss, so I thought I might as well just uh, continue reading his book. So uh, I've always been kind of curious about George Lucas, and 
what happened? Um, so, so, and I'm finding it an actual fascinating book, uh, if only because I'm still in the early portion of his life, uh, just before American Graffiti. And it's, it's so interesting to read where he was headed and see where he went. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this was a guy who was all set to become an experimental filmmaker. Yes. A, uh, he was going to do Apocalypse Now. Yes. Um, he, he, he was actually a wonderkin in, in college for his experimental tone poems and documentaries. And, uh, I'm very curious to see how Star Wars happened from that. Although I think it's also, you can kind of see him heading that direction. So it, it's a book I'm very, very interested in. I'm enjoying. Um, Lucas is a guy I don't know a lot about, uh, you know, aside from his Star Wars stuff and more of the technical stuff he does. Uh, so it's an interesting read. I, I'm liking it. Um, and I also recommend Brian J. Jones's uh, Henson documentary or biography, which is fantastic. Um, so that got me thinking as I started reading this. There are, you know, there are a lot of great books out about film, and I'm sure as critics we've read a bunch of them. Yep. And so I originally thought we'll do a bonus episode, but you came with three, I came with three. We'll just see how long this goes. Um, I, I'm interested, what kind of books did you gravitate towards? Are yours books just about film or uh, criticism? Uh, Minor, I, well, I decided to go with, uh, uh, when I started thinking about this, I eliminated, uh, I eliminated fiction. Okay. Yeah, I went with books that were either criticism or were history. Okay. And uh, I was I was able to land by cheating on three. <laughs> and I'm not going to apologize for how I cheated. It'll become readily apparent. Um, mine are definitely same same vein. Okay. Uh, there's a little bit of criticism. There's a little bit of film history. There's a little bit of something that uh, has a more personal pull to me. Um, but they are all nonfiction and. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk about them. Uh, why don't you start us off? What's your first book? Uh, my first book is, uh, and it's going to be, it's going to be where I cheat. Okay, sure. <laughs> uh, because I couldn't pick one because I, I go back to all of them at different points mm-hmm. for different reasons. And it's pretty much, uh, all of Pauline Kale's collections. Okay. I can't, I, I, I have, uh, whether it's I Lost It in the Movies, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Deeper into Movies, which is probably the one I go back to the most. That's from, that's the collection from the, Late sixties, early seventies, uh, and but I even love. I'm not mean, as a as a young as a teenager. I read the ones that were closer to that time period. So mm-hmm. I love I love her eighties and nineties collection. I love Hooked. I love Deeper into Films, uh, Deeper into Movies, Taking It All In, State of the Art, uh, because it shows that yeah, it's easy to say there were great cr- and famous critics when there were great and famous movies worth talking about. But her reviews of stuff that we mm-hmm. don't think of as great movies yeah. or a great time period films are still really on point and really fascinating. And, uh, and, uh, she's just who I return to over and over again for a variety of reasons, whether it's inspiration, you know, to get my own butt writing or just to think, to finally catch up with something that I'd never seen and to go back and read her review again. Yeah. Uh, I just, that whole library of, of her work is, is, uh, is just very special and dear to me. Pauline Kale is very hard to find her stuff. I, I found. Yeah. Um, because she is a writer who I've wanted to really get into. Um, I haven't read a lot of her stuff. I feel like I checked one of her collections out of the library a few years back. I enjoyed it. She is a, uh, very solid writer. Um, I need to, I need to track down more of her stuff. Uh, I'm sure Amazon will help me out with that. So, uh, no, that, that's great. Um, 
there, there's a book we're going to talk all about in a little bit that really leans on Pauline Kael's influence a little bit. So I'm, I'm excited to get there. Uh, where, where have you found her stuff? Uh, I've just amassed it over the years. Okay. Uh, lo- it, there was a time when you could find them in used bookstores really easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, in paperback, that's how I have them all. Okay. Uh, the only big hardcover collection I know is like, a, it's like 5,000 Nights at the Movies or something. I it's think her, that's what I tracked down. Which yes. isn't, like, that's something else. That's those like... capsule reviews? Those are, yeah, those are more capsule-like. Yeah. They aren't her full New Yorker reviews, as I, as I understand. I've never looked at 5,000 Nights at the Movies, so I don't know that to be sure. I could be completely wrong. But yeah, those those giant collections of her, all her New Yorker pieces, okay. are, uh, boy, they're, like I said, even no matter what time period they're from, they're they're worth digging out. They okay. are. She was from a time when critics had a lot more sway than they hold right now. Um, and they held sway in a different way. Yeah. I still think critics matter. I still think they, they just matter. matter in a different way. I feel like right now there are so many, that there are so many voices out there. You don't, like, what she said could make or break a movie. I don't know that we have that today. I think. I mean, aside from us. I think you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't have such control from so many producers over what critics see what movies. I think that's, that's not true. true. I think, I, I think that's a myth that people like to say. But I don't think it's true. I think you can, everybody wants good buzz. And if you've made a shit movie, you don't want to put it in front of people's eyes who are going to say, that's a shit movie. And that'll always be true. That's why it may not be as much sway. They still have sway. Don't, even if it's just, even if it's not one, even if it's just if you want to take criticism as a mass. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, why why is anyone going to Rotten Tomatoes if that's not true? That's true. I, why why is Certified Fresh such a big deal if critics don't matter? I guess that's true. Maybe I just want the Pauline Kale money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there was a day where, and maybe it is just we have so many voices out there that it is people tend to go more to that concentrated view on Rotten Tomatoes. Which, by the way, Rotten Tomatoes is a whole topic that deserves an episode one day. Um, the because I feel like it's been good and ill. But I, I mean, when Pauline Kael could write these lengthy articles about form, about, you know, attacking certain, you know, certain directors or their form. Yes. And that became part of the cultural conversation. And maybe the conversations just changed so much where we have a critic like maybe a uh, David Ehrlich or something who throws something out there. And then the next week we're on to the next subject already. Yes. Um, but That's uh, part Pauline of it for Kael, sure. Pauline Kale is definitely someone I need to read more of. Um, I tended to gravitate more toward my first subject, which is Roger Ebert. Um, Because there there is no way I can talk about film without talking about Roger Ebert. Uh, My love of film without Roger Ebert. And I almost cheated, but Perry, I'm better than you at this. (laughs) (laughs) I have a little more integrity. Uh, I'm not going to cheat. Except I guess it's kind of a cheat because it's a collection. Um... I went with Roger Ebert's Awake in the Dark yeah. um, because I was not sure where to go, whether I do one of his great movie collections. Uh, he has a fantastic memoir. Um, he has written collection. They've collected his reviews of horrible movies, which are a blast to read. But Awake in the Dark is really kind of the place to start. It's a collection of almost everything he's done. So it, there is a personal essay that I love where he talks about how lucky he is to get to see movies every week and write about movies. Uh, it has interviews with Lee Marvin, Jimmy Stewart, uh, just fantastic interviews before they were all controlled by the publicists. So you have, there is a rambling interview with I Robert Mitchum. Richard, Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. I believe Ebert's in the back of his car. Yes. And... 
You it's a not, fabulous piece. This would not exist today. You would have that so controlled by the publicist. You'd be in and out of that junket in 15 minutes. And this is Ebert, you know, spending a day with Robert Mitchum. This is uh, him just kind of loitering on sets of film uh, before that became very controlled and you had 20 people there. Uh, so the interviews alone are worth the price of this book. It, it, it has his top his review of the top film from every year from, I believe, Bonnie and Clyde on until he stopped writing, um, which is which is totally worth it. It has all his top ten lists. Uh, it is a fascinating collection. I return to it time and time again because Roger Ebert's voice, I, I, I love it so much. Uh, he was... He was definitely my entrance into film criticism and the idea that you could write smartly about film while also he has a very everyman's voice. Um, he he's definitely he's a great writer, but he doesn't he, he's one of those guys who's never had that voice where it's overly pretentious to me. I, I feel like I could sit down with a, at a bar with him. And you would have the same conversation. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I think that's his journalist background, which is you have to write at the fourth or sixth grade level because that's what America expects. But he does that in a way where he's not writing dumb. He's just finding the clearest way to say it. And I love that he inserts himself into his reviews. I love that he admits that he has his own little quirks and fetishes that affect what he likes. Um... I love reading Roger Ebert. I have never been tired of it. When uh, Steve James did his documentary on life itself, I was really dreading that movie, mainly because I'm like, so much of what I like about Ebert is his writing, and I felt like a movie wouldn't honor, or wouldn't find a way to honor his voice. Mm -hmm. And then that movie has snippets from his reviews on the screen, and <laughs> I, I enjoy that movie quite a bit. But I would also tell people... His memoir, Life Itself, is worth checking out as well. Um, yeah. See, I had, and this is interesting for me because Ebert was not someone I grew up reading. Okay. Because there weren't yeah. no, collections I, of his stuff when mm -hmm. I was at the age where they were on TV all the time. Mm -hmm. But what I did have was a very oddly shaped paper bag. It was one of those that was much taller than it was a, a normal book and uh, mm -hmm. uh, not as wide. Uh, that was put out by, if I remember the cover correctly, in tandem with BASF, the wow. the, the videotape yeah. production company, that was a collection of uh, a bunch of his four-star reviews. So it was okay. all rave reviews. And that was the only Ebert I read oh, wow. as a kid. Because I didn't, you know, there was there was no internet. I could not check out what was going on in the Chicago Sun-Times. I wasn't going mm -hmm. to subscribe to the Chicago Sun-Times. But Ebert, to me, was always a talking head. Which is not, I'm not using that term dismissively at all. He was incredibly no. formative. Yeah. The same as he was for you. Just not his writing. It mm -hmm. was, it was you know, years later until I got to read him with any degree of regularity. So I don't have that relationship with Ebert. But the Kale books were available to me, so I had those. That's fascinating. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I knew of Siskel and Ebert, obviously, and I'd probably seen them on Oprah and things like that. But I don't think I was ever... I don't think I'd ever actually watched Siskel and Ebert. Oh, wow. And it was on YouTube and stuff. Oh, wow. So, I've never felt older than you. I, 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 <laughs> no, it, was, it wasn't because it wasn't on. It was, right, it was but, Sundays when they aired and we were at church. So I never saw that. But I, I knew of Siskel and Ebert. Wow. But in my 20s, I was, uh, I was talking to a friend online about movies. And I think I was talking about how... I, you know, I wish there were more critics than, uh, I think at the time it was Terry Lawson and whoever was at the news at the time, which was not Tom Long, uh, Susan Stark. 
Um, and and I remember saying, I wish I had more people out there to read. And this was the very early days of the internet. So my other choice was Harry Knowles. Um, and my friend said, well, I read a lot of Roger Ebert. I'm like, yeah, but he's in Chicago. I can't read his stuff. And she's like, well, there's this thing called the internet. And uh, his reviews were on there. And I, yeah, I devoured that. And I would, I would go back and read. He would do his, uh, movie answer man questions. Yes. And I would go back and just read for hours, pour over those. I'd go back and read the great movie reviews. Uh, yeah, I, Roger Ebert. And, and he became even a better writer, I think, when he lost his voice. Uh, and he started writing very personal blog entries. He started writing more about politics. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I love Ebert. He, yeah, I would not be who I am today without Ebert. So, no, you would not. No way could I uh, left, leave him off this list. Um, but you finally, you thought it was okay to leave him off the list. <laughs> I uh, maybe. I don't know what I did. Job, but. I did. No, I'll give you a I have no Eberts on this list. But uh, you have Pauline Kael, who was very influential to Ebert. It's uh, true. So uh, who do you got for number two? What do you got at number two? Number two, and I will do this. I, uh, uh, so I only keep... Okay, there's a lot of books next mm-hmm. to my uh, chair where I tend to sit when I watch movies at home mm-hmm. uh, that rotate in and out all the time. But there's one that's always there. Okay. There's one that never moves. The new edition replaces the old edition when it comes out, but there's one I kept since, I think, edition four. Mm-hmm. I think we're up to edition eight or nine now, maybe ten. And that is David Thompson's The Biographical Dictionary of Film. Okay. David Thompson's a British critic uh, who... Uh, the Biographical Dictionary of Film is... <laughs> this giant piece of opinion disguised as fact. <laughs> it is, it's just a giant list of people who have been in movies. And for each entry, it has a list of their credits. Sometimes it's complete. Sometimes it's not. Wow. And then an essay about them. And uh, Thompson, more than any critic I've read, has the ability to distill the essence of especially actors i think he's he's not quite as good at directors because he think he he spends more time in directors and lets them gives them more space to write about them Mm -hmm. uh to distill an actor down to a sentence or two and i don't mean for that to sound it is reductive but i don't mean for it to sound reductive it still gives them all of their weight and all of their power Mm -hmm. um and it is like having a really knowledgeable good friend next to you to argue with. Because I don't agree with him oh, so it's all a, the time. It's not just any means. Oh, they're all opinion pieces. Okay, okay. They're nothing but opinion pieces. I was thinking it was like a before IMDB came out, you had this. No, it's okay. it is it is a biographical dictionary of film. It's his okay. biography of these people. Oh, his, oh, I, you his, know what? I was thinking their biography. No. Okay, okay. No, it's about his approach to all these people. I mean, yeah, I mean, you'll learn a little bit about them, but that's not what this is. Okay. These are columnettes. Okay. <laughs> with, with a couple of exceptions of really long pieces that he'll write about. You know, you can't sum up Alfred Hitchcock in two columns. Yeah, yeah. You go on with that. But these are mine. I mean, this is, this is, for other people, this would be a bathroom book. You could pick up and, you know, read three or four of these while you're sitting on the can. Uh, I have it there because I'll be watching something and I'll be like, oh yeah, what did he say about, uh, you know, I, I'm blanking on a name to give an example of, pick the French leading man of your choice. You know, I'm like, he probably wrote an essay on that. Let's check it out. And sure enough, he did. And I'll pause the movie and read all that and then go back to it. I have, I have loved this book since I was in college. Uh, I buy it every time there's a new edition because he updates and takes some people out and brings new people in. Uh, I find him, even when I disagree with him, uh, fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And I disagree with him, not a ton, but when I do, it's harsh. Uh, I, uh, I, 
he's the only critic I have a lot of deep respect for who very much questions Scorsese. I don't understand how you can, but he does. Uh, because when he's right, he's, he's, he's also, when I agree with him, it's wonderful. <laughs> it, it is fun to have that. It's, it's just, it's like having an imaginary friend next to you. He's fun to talk with and argue with and, uh, and make you think. Uh, David Thompson's biographical dictionary film in any edition, wherever you can find it, you can easily find old ones in, you know, bulk used, bulk old bookstores because the new ones come out and the old ones go to remain, okay. go to remainders. Uh, it's just fun. Thompson's very good at, at, at this. It's, it's, it's his, he found the perfect medium for how well he writes. And his, he, you can find him online writing in lots of other places too, but this is my favorite of his stuff. I will have to check that out. I think I'd heard of that before and thought it would be a eating your vegetables thing. Not at all. But, uh, I was actually going to do some used book store shopping this weekend and maybe I will uh, add that to the list. Keep those eyes peeled. Yeah. Uh, so my second book is, it's definitely more of a history book. I just read it, actually. I checked it out of the library. It is Mark Harris's uh, Pictures of the Revolution. Oh, yeah. Um, which I picked out because I ha- I hadn't ever read anything by Mark Harris uh, aside from, I think he was an Entertainment Weekly writer. Yes, he was. And I read him a lot there, but I hadn't read any of his books before. But I had seen the Netflix series, Five Came Back, which is a really interesting series. Mm-hmm. Um and I remember someone was talking about that. And they're like, well, what I'd really like them to do is make uh, pictures at a revolution. And so I was at the library a few weeks ago and I saw it. And I'm like, oh, that actually sounds like a really interesting book. And it is his examination of the making of the five best picture nominees from, it was it 68? 67. 67. Okay. So it's uh, The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and Dr. Doolittle. And it's his story about kind of the shift uh, between new and old Hollywood at that time. And it is fascinating. Have you read it? I have not. Okay. I have, uh, for for reasons of my, I, I don't love Mark Harris's stuff. Okay. He's fine. He's not a bad writer. I just, I have, I have, I have, I don't share opinions with Mark Harris okay. on some things. And so it's kept me from reading a lot of his stuff. He's very good. It's, it's fascinating because it's not an opinion piece. Um, yeah. So it's definitely... Here's what was going on in Hollywood at that time. And you just realize how there was this changing of the guard at that time. And it's funny how people who were involved in, you know, Bonnie and Clyde bumped up against and were often involved in the same pictures as the people who might have made, gone on to make Dr. Doolittle yeah. or, um, you know, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. It, it's just, it's really a fascinating, engrossing, very quick read because it's just, I mean, there's... There's enough gossip in there to make it very entertaining. I mean, Rex would read, or Rex Harrison's wife uh, is just a character who I would read a whole book about. Uh, just <laughs> stories of her. Maybe it wasn't his wife or a mistress or something. He had a lot of that. But a uh, lady who would have too much to drink and bark Doctor like a dog. do a lot. Yeah. Fist bump. <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> um, but it, it's also just fascinating realizing how... You know, movies that we take for granted as masterpieces, like The Graduate or Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, not Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, but uh, Bonnie and Clyde were almost not made at all or made totally different. Like Truffaut and Godard were going to make Bonnie and Clyde. Yes. And The Graduate, they did not want Dustin Hoffman for that. No. And it really is this fascinating look at how Hollywood is A this really neurotic community where they second guess any choice they're going to make. And the great films are made by accident. It's just, it's fascinating to watch that. It's fascinating just to see this changing of the guard as, uh, you know, kind of these older sensibilities gave way to 
what set their eyes for, you know, a Coppola or a Lucas or things like that. Yep. And uh, it's fascinating. It made me go and realize I had not seen Bonnie and Clyde, so it's on Netflix, so it's on my Netflix queue. Um, It it really is a fun little read, and... uh, yeah, it, it, it's great. I, I probably, I'm sure it's very good. It's 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 right up my alley. The problem is, I feel you might like know everything. I know right. It's, yeah. I felt like I don't know that I want to read the whole book to find the three or four things I don't already yeah. know. <laughs> Which is not to brag. It's just the area of film I know very well. I know this period well. I like yeah, this yeah. period a lot. Um, it allows me to tell my favorite story. From one of these movies. Okay. Which is the sound design on Bonnie and Clyde. Okay. Is this story in the book? I don't think it is. Okay. So I love this story. So uh, they're making Bonnie and Clyde and Warren Beatty meant, wanted, he always felt that in all movies that he'd seen, gunshots weren't loud enough. The okay. guns are loud when they go off. And he wanted them really loud. And the only thing, the only film he'd ever seen that he felt got it right was Shane. Okay. That Shane is sound mixed that way. And so he went... To the sound recordist and mixers of Shane, and I don't know if they worked in the film or he learned from them exactly what they needed to do, but that's exactly how they recorded and mixed the guns. It's really okay. loud. Okay. The film is playing for the first time publicly. I can't remember where it is. I can't remember if it's a festival or if it's just a screening somewhere. I think it's a, I think it was a festival somewhere. And Beatty's watching it, and you know, he was one of the producers on the movie. He really shepherded, he's the reason Biden Clyde got made. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> He's watching it, and the first gunfight happens, and it's all wrong. It's the sound is hideous. It's mm-hmm. it's not what he wants at all. And he goes running up to the projection booth and says, "What is happening? The sound is completely wrong." And the guy says, "Yeah, I looked at it. The sound mix is horrible. It's the worst sound mix we've seen since Shane." <laughs> that's great. That's yeah, not in that's, the book. That should be in the that book. should be in the book. Uh, what I found fascinating was the idea, like you, Bonnie and Clyde would not. It would maybe exist today, but it would not have the success it had. Because that movie came out, they pulled it from theaters and then put it back in. I mean, this is back when movies would play for a year or two. Yes. It, that does not exist today. Well, yeah. And talk about and talk about critics having an effect. It got pulled yeah. in part because Bowsley Crowther's infinite yeah, was they do ancient the at the time. Yeah. His review of Bonnie and Clyde, he didn't get it. He yeah. was he was the wrong generation by that point. It had passed him by. He was... He was uh, yeah, he was the wrong generation. And Kale's review, yep, they, which was uh, which was very positive, helped bring it back. To which point, they sent a different New York Times critic to review it. <laughs> well, and I think it was the critic for Life, Life or Time, uh, wrote a second review. Like he panned it the first time, and then literally came back two weeks later and wrote another review saying, "Yeah, I was totally wrong on this movie." Yeah, uh, which. You might have happened today because people want the clicks on the second view, but uh, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it's a fascinating look. It's a really interesting look at that period in Hollywood. Um, so I recommend it. It's Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris. It's a fun little read. What's your third? My third book is the perfect follow up okay. to your to, to Pictures from a Revolution. So I really, really encourage you to check this out. Um, Jay Hoberman was the longtime critic at the Village Voice, okay, and one of the greatest minds and writers about. The film underground about okay. about not even art films, but truly the weird American New York underground films of uh, of the sixties and seventies. And he was a great critic. On top of that, he just was mm-hmm. there during that period and knows all this stuff. He wrote my favorite piece of cultural and film criticism combined, and that's a book called The Dream Life. Okay, which basically picks up right there 
it starts in about the mid sixties and basically follows the, what for what I'm willing to believe is probably the only time in history, a 10 year period where the movie industry and the social culture and the political culture were actually hand in hand. Mm -hmm. They were not, they were not influencing each other back and forth. It was direct. They were mixed together. Uh, and it's about how the, the rise of a counterculture leads to the rise of Easy Rider and mm -hmm. all of this. And how the response to all of that, how the rise of Nixon leads to an incredible reactionary response in Hollywood in the same way. And uh, does it by not, again, not being highfalutin about it at all. This mm -hmm. is not, it is, it is, it is great reporting. Uh, and opinion as well. I don't mean to imply it's not there as well. But it's not... It is not film criticism. Mm -hmm. It is social criticism. And it's wide lens social okay. criticism. It's about, like I said, it is about how the culture, the, the popular culture was affecting the political culture and how there were forces directly at the center of both of them, especially in Warren Beatty, that, <laughs> that really was tied in very deeply with both of them and had an effect on both and how, and the ramifications of all of that. It's... It's just a thrilling read to me. Uh, it's, it is great history. It's okay. great cultural anthropology. Uh, and it's, it, it'll make you want to see a bunch of movies if you haven't seen them. Okay. <laughs> um, and it, it gets back a lot of things that politically that I think, especially now, 40 years later, no one knows or thinks about <laughs> that were really a big battle. They, they, are, they are not footnotes. It's what was going on at the time. It's really important. And it affects it, how it affects the art of the time. Okay. Uh, yeah, The Dream Life by Jay Hoberman. Uh, uh, like I said, an, an absolutely perfect follow-up. That actually to sounds Christian Revolution. fascinating. Let me see. If I'm you just, can find it anywhere. I bet I can find it on Amazon. I but. actually don't have a copy of it. I read it I read it from the library soon after it came out. I knew it was out there. And I've, I, a lot of Jay Hoberman's stuff is great. His, his collection about... Uh, about art films in the 60s and 70s is superb. Um, yeah, the books I'm finding are all uh, Christian journals. So, uh, oh, wait, wait. Well, that shows what you search oh, for. There, we there go. you go. There you go. No, that's what my wife searches for. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I will be... Uh, Fair. Shared computer. I get it. Uh, yeah, I will uh, be checking that out soon. I might, I might track that one down. That sounds very fascinating. Yeah, it's great. Um, so my third book is, uh, I mean... I kind of feel like I keep going back to the well with the spiritual thing, but that's who I am. And, and it, it's a book that was deeply influential for me um, a few years back. It's actually, when we were going to do a bonus episode, I had another book. I was going to do uh, Josh Larson's Movies Are Prayers, which I highly recommend. This is actually fits in better with uh, the conversation right now, and it's Jeffrey Overstreet's book from, I want to say, like 2003 or four, uh, called Through a Screen Darkly. And Jeffrey Overstreet was the film critic at Christianity Today for a while. He now runs his own website called Looking Closer. Uh, this book came along for me about the right time when I was fairly read up on Roger Ebert. I read this as I was just starting to write about film criticism or write about film at the paper. Uh, I was working a second job at the Bible bookstore at the time. And someone, one of my coworkers was like, have you seen this book? You might be interested in this. And I will say, normally, I am. this is a book about basically a man who grew up in a sheltered home, his journey to embrace film and realize it's okay to be a spiritual person and to love good films. Mm -hmm. And normally, I would run from these books because if you've grown up in Christian culture, when Christians write about film, 
historically, that's starting to change. It had traditionally been nipple counters, basically. It was, here's how many boobs are in this yes. movie. Here's how many swear words are in this movie. Here's here's how this movie ta- is really about... Here's how E.T. is really about Jesus. Um, which, sure. But I, 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 didn't want that. I wanted someone who was going to challenge me. I wanted someone who was going to move away from Lord of the Rings and Gladiator, which are the movies that Christian culture really seemed to gather around. And Jeffrey Overstreet does that. Uh, he is a writer who taught, who really opened my eyes to seeing beauty in the movies and being able to say, hey, as a Christian, you are seeing movie, you can see a movie and it can have R-rated material in there and that's okay because life is R-rated and it can deal with beauty and he pointed me towards so many movies that I've come to love. Uh, I don't think I would have given Taxi Driver a second chance had he not pushed, <laughs> pointed me toward that. Um, he has a really great chapter about movies that deal with darkness and deal with loneliness and deal with those who might be ostracized from society. And he talks at great length about Taxi Driver and how that is a movie about, you know, isolation and loneliness and a man who is so filled with bad ideas and anger and rage. And it's a movie that lets them, you know, lets them breathe a little bit. Uh, he, I would not love Babat's Feast if it were not oh. him. a movie I adore. It's one of my 20 favorite movies. Uh, I had never heard of it until I read <laughs> Jeffrey Overstreet writing about Babat's Feast. And I visited that. And that is a movie that says so much to me about beauty and grace and yes. forgiveness. Uh, he was the one who, when I was about to turn 30, reminded me that the Muppets existed. And it was because of him that I went a week before my 30th birthday and watched the Muppet movie again <laughs> and utterly was in tears by the end of it because of how much I love that movie and how beautiful it is. Uh, it is a great movie because it is not your typical book about faith and film. It is a movie about by a spiritual person who is finding spiritual components to movies that many people in the church ignore or turn away from. It, he... He loves Life of Brian, uh, which is a movie that let me know it's okay to laugh at all this. Yes. Uh, and, and I love that because, he, you know, his whole theme in movies is look closer, see what's going on behind the scenes, see what it's saying to your soul. And I think that results in some really rich criticism. Uh, I think there are a lot of people who come out of faith backgrounds now who are starting to do some of the most interesting film criticism I've seen. Um, Alyssa Wilkinson at Vox. She is a fantastic and terrifyingly smart writer. And she was the head critic again at, uh, film, at Christianity Today for a long time. Fantastic critic. Uh, Josh Larson at Film Spotty. He also writes for, I think, a website called Think Christian. And I, like I said, his book, uh, Movies Are Prayers, it, it's a great follow up to what uh, Jeffrey Overstreet did. And Matthew Zoller cites, has uh, said before, if you want to know, you know, if you really want good, challenging film criticism, turn to writers from a religious background. He's like, because they are going to find some things that you're not even going to be looking for. Mm -hmm. And he's gotten in great conversations with Jeffrey Overstreet about, you know, the spirituality of the Coens and things like that. So it really, it opened my eyes to a lot of things that I hadn't even considered out there. It challenged me. It still challenges me uh, to keep, you know, Looking at movies that I would normally ignore, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend that, especially for anyone from that background. Sounds it, great. It is a great book. I return to it every few years. Uh, I think 
Jeffrey Overstreet is still one of the most fascinating and experimental critics out there. He was uh, doing for a while. He would write fictional film reviews. Uh, like he, he would tell, write a short story that was his way of wrestling with a movie. So he wrote a review of Before Midnight that was uh, told from the perspective of a video store clerk who was married, who was meeting with the one who got away <laughs> and, and wrestling with that. And it, it's a fascinating review. Uh, he just did a three-part uh, look at Toy Story 3 that I think is uh, really one of the most insightful looks at the film I've seen. So, uh, yeah, that's Through a Screen Darkly. It is a great, great book. Excellent. Uh, did you have anything you left off? Or uh, I mean, so many things. I mean, I, I avoided... Uh, I mean, there, there are those great records of you know, production's gone awry. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the devil's uh, the devil's candy. The making of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities is mm-hmm. screamingly funny, and if you love film at all, horrifying to watch <laughs> every bad decision being made and being uh, have it explained to you why it's being made, like by the artist. This isn't even a studio interfering. Uh, you've got. Uh, Oh, uh, oh! What's the final cut? The Stephen Box book about the making of Heaven's Gate okay. is screamingly funny <laughs> and horrifying. Uh, so and and again, if we're and if you're looking at fiction stuff, I know you've probably seen it, but if you've never read Elmore Leonard's Get Shorty, read it. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It's so tight. It's so funny, good. and it's yes, it 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 eliminates the wacky. Which is what Barry Sonnenfeld brings to get Shorty the movie. And it's okay. a good movie. I don't dislike the movie. Yeah. I just prefer the book. Okay. John Travolta is not a killer in Get Shorty. Chili Palmer in the book's a killer. <laughs> and that makes a difference. You gotta make him nicer in the movie. Exactly. And um, a short piece that you might be able to find online somewhere. Uh, since I, uh, I gave... Yes, I will spoil it. I told Chris to call me David Foster Wallace. I love <laughs> David Foster Wallace. Um... He has a short story called My Appearance, which is about an actress's appearance on the David Letterman show. Okay. In the late 80s. And it's, it's, it's not about movies in particular. Mm-hmm. It's an exploration of what is real and what isn't. It kind of goes back to our documentary episode. Okay. Because what is the level of performance of her being on this show? And is Dave dealing with her really with her or with this persona that she's put out there and is the is Dave's thing a persona or is it really Dave in a really clean way like it's getting all that but it's not dry about yeah. that at all um, it's one of my favorite things uh, that he ever is wrote. that in one of his collections there. it is I believe the full version is in the girl with curious hair I don't think that one alright because I have considered the lobster and uh, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again <laughs> yeah um, Which has an amazing extended piece about David Lynch in it. Uh, okay. He wrote, wrote about he wrote about David Lynch for Premiere back when um, Premiere was a thing, and that that article is expanded by about twenty pages in a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. It's really worth reading. Speaking of David Foster Wallace, uh, one of the most like uh, one of the most vivid pieces I remember reading was a piece he wrote for Premiere that I read way too young. Uh, Big Red Sun. Um, I, I don't think that's what maybe, I might be wrong about. Oh, it's about uh, the Adult Film Awards? Oh, yes! It, oh, yes! I, yeah. I was way too young to read that article, and it stuck with me, but a few years ago, I got Considered the Lobster, and I read it. It's in there, yeah. And that is a great piece. I, I mean, everything he wrote was pretty great. So. Yeah. Um, I almost considered including a, piece, a book about TV criticism, but okay. we're not a TV podcast. Um, I think there's some... I mean, TV is really giving birth to some really great criticism right now. Uh, Alan Steppenwall and Matt Zoller sites 
just put out a book a few years ago called TV the Book. Yep, I've read it. Oh, it's so good. It's it's so good. And really anything by either of them I love. Um, Sepinwall wrote a book called The Revolution Will Be Televised that is fantastic about Breaking Bad and Mad Men and Sopranos and the whole rise of those shows. Uh, Matt Zollersites wrote a really great book uh, going through all of Oliver Stone's movies that I'm still making my way through, and it is fantastic. Um, I don't think I considered anything else, though. There's a lot that I read that is film-related that is just kind of the toss-off, I'll read it at a restaurant because it entertains me. Have you ever read uh, Day of the Locust? Nathaniel West, Day of the Locust? No, I have not. Ah, uh, put that in your list. Okay, what's that That's a classic. That's a, that's a dark comedy. That's a black okay. 40s. Uh, written for, I think, Frank Daniels wrote in the 40s. Okay. Uh, it's just a black comedy about Hollywood. What okay. makes Sammy run? There's lots of, I mean, there's lots of great stuff about Hollywood, but yes. All right. Lots to find and explore. Listeners, what should we add to our list? Contact us at Facebook, on Twitter. Let us know personally. Perry, where are you at on Twitter? You can find me at Perry Loves Film on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook under my name. You can hear me every Friday morning at 12, uh, on 1290 AM in the Ann Arbor area on the Lucy and Lance Show. And you can usually find me sitting center of the third row at your local multiplex. All right. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Mere Christianity. You can listen to uh, my other podcast, Wasting Time, which airs every Wednesday on Big Heads Media. And you can listen, read, I always say listen, you can read my film reviews and writing about film at michigansportsandentertainment.com. And we'll be back in two weeks.